Hello and welcome to today's Next Sense Institute podcast. My name is Trudy Smith and I am the manager of continuing professional education at the Next Sense Institute and your host for this podcast. I am so delighted to have this team with us today. I'm always excited by the research work that comes out of Macquarie University and Next Sense and we've got a great team with us today to talk about their current project. So we'll get you to introduce yourselves ladies. So Rebecca, can you please start for us? Good morning. Um, I'm Rebecca Kim. I am an audiologist. I am a researcher. I am an educator. Um, and I'm the current clinic manager of paediatric audiology at Next Sense. And I'm Isabel. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm uh, trained as a clinical audiologist, and I am now a researcher and a lecturer at the University of Sydney in the space of information and services in relation to hearing loss. And I'm Nicole Matthews. I'm a teacher and researcher at Macquarie University in the Department of Media, Music, Communications, uh, Creative Arts, Literature and Languages. I think I got that right. It's changed names recently. And I'm an, on the team alongside my colleague, Justine Lloyd, who's a sociologist at Macquarie University. So we're kind of the ring-ins from other disciplines, getting the opportunity to learn from the audiologists on our team. Brilliant. And I'm gonna start with you, Nicole, with our first question. Why do you think listening in the clinic is so important? Well, I guess I should start off just by clarifying, because I know you've got lots of uh, expert listeners around listening in the audience, that we're, we're focusing not on kind of physiological hearing when we're talking about this, but the process of kind of trying to understand what people are communicating and experiencing. So that's, that's the focus of, of our um, research and our interest. And I guess over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, there's been a real political push to make sure that uh, the experiences, the perspectives, the voices of people who've previously been kind of um, undervalued, set aside, marginalised, have, have come to the fore. And I think that that's really important, that emphasis on, you know, giving more people an opportunity to, to speak about their experience. But the flip side of that, I guess, is that it's all very well people telling their stories and often people are asked to do so again and again and again. But um, people with influence, people who have got positions of power, people who are professionals, really need to also be attending to and acting upon the stories that they're, they're hearing. So I think that's what we really tried to do in this research. We're really interested in the ways that um, health professionals, particularly hearing health professionals might um, act upon and acknowledge and, and pay attention to the lived experience accounts. So I think often there's a bit of a disconnect between what happens in kind of clinical settings and what's happening in this wider political scene. Like we're all aware of the importance of equality and um, you know, voice in this wider political environment. But I think when you come down to healthcare settings, often people switch off from that way of thinking and focus in on questions of you know, the psychological, the interpersonal, the biomedical. So what we've been interested in doing in this project is kind of be a bit attentive to that connection. Um, and I guess audiology is particularly an interesting context for this because you know, um, in the audiological kind of scene, it's, it feels like people are very aware of the alternative ways that um, clinical experiences might be framed and the way the audiological profession um, might um, be experienced. And I think that's partly because of the presence of the kind of culturally deaf community out there saying, hang on, it's, it's about access and equality and communication, not so much about biomedicine. So I think when we talk to people um, in our focus groups with um, audiologists and audiological researchers um, a couple of years back, we found people were really aware of that terrain of power. 
Um, and But at the same time, there's a little bit of a challenge in bringing together this wider political understanding of social justice and equality and thinking about it in the space of the clinic where we think it really you know, can make a real difference. Um, sure. So yeah, that's partly why we think it's really important. Absolutely. And so Rebecca, I should, what are the influences then that are shaping the way audiologists listen or don't listen to the lived experiences of their clients? Yeah, so it was it was really, really interesting with the focus groups because there was a lot of consistency against uh, across the different focus groups with the sorts of things that audiologists were reporting that are really shaping their ability to really listen to their clients. So we ended up um, identifying four different influences on audiologists listening. Um, the first is a medico-technical uh, paradigm which really focuses on the traditional medical model of clinical practice where hearing loss is viewed as a deficit that requires treatment through devices like hearing aids or cochlear implants. Um, in these sorts of uh, settings or with this sort of uh, influence, professional expertise is seen as having priority over client experience and professional listening takes the form of sort of structured um, interviews and responses to professional questions. The next uh, influences the business paradigm. Um, the business-related aspects came up time and time again, and they were often discussed as barriers to listening to clients. Um, so business models of clinical practice were seen as shaping what can actually be heard and the listening behaviours. Um, a really, really strong theme was the lack of time to actually listen to the clients. And I've got a, a quote here. Um, one of our participants said, I think one of the biggest limitations now are these links to commercialisation and making a profit for even the government organisations and the amount of time that's given to the clinician who works in a system because the appointment times are used to give people, um, sorry, the appointment times that I used to give people, they've pretty much halved in a lot of the in a lot of respects. So time is being taken away from the clinician, so they're not able to to look after the client in the way that they wanted to. Sure. The psychosocial paradigm um, focuses on the impact of social interactions and psychological well-being. Um, we know that hearing loss is related to multiple psychosocial impacts, for example, feelings of loneliness, anxiety, difficulties with sleep, depression, and the list goes on and on and on. As audiologists, we're expected to address the impact of hearing loss on a person's psychosocial functioning, um, and listening in the clinic is seen as an opportunity for clients to share these experiences and difficulties um, that can happen at home, in school, or in the workplace, and how they feel about it. But one of the issues that was raised with the audiologists is that once you've got that information, what do you do with it? And sometimes clients are disclosing information that's very personal and, um, and uh, you know, something that the clinician might actually feel that they have to act on, but they're not really sure if they can. So I've got another quote to illustrate that point. Um, one of the participants said, there have been times where I've had personal stories that border on whether I should be actioning it actioning it as a clinician because I'm bound by legal duties to report any abuse but it's confidential because the door is closed and the person trusts you and whatever they tell you they feel confident that either you won't repeat it or maybe you could do something to help them so really not necessarily knowing if a client does disclose something in their wider context we have a responsibility to to act on that but is the client sharing that because they feel like this is a safe space or are they sharing that in order to, to get assistance with these issues? Um, 
the final sort of um, paradigm or force that's shaping listening is the social justice paradigm. And the essence of social justice uh, paradigm of listening is moving beyond a focus on the individual or interpersonal frame accounts to become attuned to the underpinning structures that shape and make uh, possible particular social experiences. So it's listening um, as being attentive to the terrain of power um, across which lived experience accounts can emerge. And we're seeking um, through careful listening to begin to redistribute this power. Oh, so interesting. I, mean, I could I could spend hours just unpacking each of those implications, but I guess that Rebecca, there have to be practical implications for changing the way that we listen in the clinic. Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you look at any of the literature, we know that listening to clients and having person-centered um, clinical encounters shared communication, shared decision-making um, and more balanced power relationships, that leads to better outcomes for clients. It leads to better patient satisfaction. It leads to better adherence to treatment as well um, and better patient emotional health. So these things are really, really well described, um, but there's also wider implications when clients or potential clients hear lived experiences because the, the hearing, journey, hearing the journeys of others um, can be an additional piece of information for clients when they're deciding what the next step should be for them and choosing amongst the different intervention options. Um, so from a clinical management point of view, clinicians might hear similar sorts of stories from multiple clients about aspects of services that could be improved. And depending on their employment context, they can then share this information with their managers, act on the information that they've heard, and then assess whether or not we could actually improve services for, for everybody. And, and if we move, um, I mean, there's so much, as you said, Trudy, that we could uh, talk about on all these points. But if we move away from the more clinical settings um, at a societal level, if we take time to fully listen to the stories of people who live with hearing loss, that can really promote a self-reflection and encourage behavior change. Um, in particular, that can happen if it highlights aspects of discrimination that maybe we hadn't yet noticed. As a hearing health clinician, um, our expertise and our professional confidence uh, sometimes can be perceived as patronizing for clients, um, where we may really feel that our advice is really important and we want to give that advice and it seems super simple. And then we wonder why our clients are not listening, are not taking on that advice. And for a, a number of us, in the profession, um, it's only when we have experienced hearing loss ourselves, or a close family member has experienced hearing loss, that we have realized how hard it was, even for trained hearing health professionals, to change our behavior and to actually use the advice that seemed so easy to give at the time within a clinical setting. Um, and I think this is where the power of listening to multiple stories and perspective can really come. So it can help us. Actually, it has helped me and hopefully it can help others to become more aware and empathic um, towards instances of injustices and trying to have um, make a better impact perhaps on, um, on the society. Sure. There's, um, bringing that back to the uh, four framework or perspective that um, Rebecca has described before. So we know that within hearing health, um, the field is always balancing the medical, the psychosocial and the business aspects, but we need to uh, balance that together with more cultural aspects. 
And we know that there are multiple cultural implications for um, some of the people that we work with. And we need to ensure that we understand clients' experiences within their wider cultural context. And that's not just culture in regards to the deaf culture, which is definitely um, an important consideration, but it extends to balancing other cultural affiliations and perspectives um, about communication, identity and disability. Sure. So do you have a set of sort of concrete things that hearing health professionals can do to change things in their clinic room? Mm. And I think it comes back, uh, I touched a bit on it already uh, within the aspects of reflective practice. So we know when we uh, look around and talk to the clinician and go to conferences, the hearing health profession is really keen to shift, shift things to make changes. And just having your podcast, for example, is a good demonstration of the value we're putting on listening to stories. Um, but within a clinical setting, we know there's structural reasons that make those changes really difficult. So we might be in an employment structure that bring some limitation or there are regulations or financial aspects that will influence what we feel we can do or cannot do with those stories. So one step, um, one step might be to make a conscious shift. So it's just to think about making a shift in our mindset when we meet clients to be open to the idea that maybe we don't already know all the story that the people will tell. So when we see eight or 10 clients a day, uh, similar stories might come back. And often we see those patterns and we almost group them together. But to think about it as th that for maybe for us, it might seem like we've already heard it, but for the client, it is their story and it is really important for them. And it's very personal um, and sharing it is not easy. To, so to keep really an open mind, and I know many clinicians are already doing that, but to consciously think maybe I'm going to hear a different perspective this time and to be fully there for the client while they share that. And during our focus group, our participants seem to be really learning from one another as the discussion evolved and how they, they reflected about um, the story. And that, that really speaks to the importance of reflection uh, during and after the practice. And there are studies out there as well that show how reflective practice is something that can be developed and can help improve services. Uh, and uh, this is something I have brought uh, within my classes as well with students to try to practice and think when there's a new situation to just stop and think, okay, what has just happened? To be able to articulate that. Uh, what information have I heard and how do I feel about that information? What is new? Um, what was confronting? How do I feel about that? Um, the next step is to try to understand how it fits with my knowledge or prior beliefs and my expertise. And to think about why is this situation different? Why doesn't it fit so well with what I thought? And from there is if I have the opportunity to have this encounter again, to do to replay what just happened, what could I do differently? What would it be? And, and maybe if I see a similar client or in the future, um, is it something that I could try to change or try a different approach? So that's really the essence of reflective practices. Um, we know that uh, there are many um, hearing health professionals that are really wanting to hear those stories and our respondents even told us they had to chase those stories so it, mm -hmm. it, they don't just appear you have to look for them. So when you're talking Trudy about asking about um, examples of what where those stories could be found, what we could do to to change practices. As I said, your podcast great place to start to listen to <laughs> various <laughs> stories <laughs> It's there. <laughs> 
uh, YouTube clips, there are movies, news stories, many community groups um, have newsletters. So to register in those, their, to their newsletters and read about those stories that they're very generous in sharing. Um, if you're on Twitter, there are also many Twitter communities of deaf and hard of hearing adults where there are sometimes very critical perspectives on services and perhaps we can learn from listening to these perspectives. Um, so personally, it can be confronting. I try to see these really as opportunities to try to step out from wanting to give advice um, and more to bring my focus on trying to better understand the perspective and difficulties of people whom hearing loss is their everyday reality. And I hope that by um, doing that, my work and our profession can have a greater impact. I hope sure. that was a bit more practical. It was really practical, but I'm really conscious that taking that time to reflect on conversations and reflective practice, that requires time. And, you know, we, we've already talked about today that, um, you know, clinicians are, are, are having less time for their appointments. And, and so often that means that they have less time for the appointment, but they also have less time to then reflect on that appointment because they're going straight into the next one. So I assume that's, you know, there's actual real structural changes that need to occur to, to enable practitioners to, to be able to be reflective and, and take the time to, to let a client tell their story and then to work out the best way forward for that client. I see that as a mindset. I see mm -hmm. that it can take more time, but it's also practice. And we can apply that in multiple facets of our life of thinking, well, when, when something is a bit different, unexpected, to just stop and think, have I heard the full perspective? Is there something else that could help me reframe what just happened and if I would do it again? So it doesn't necessarily take time, but it's often to stop habits that we have in being in that professional expert role um, yep. and reflecting yeah, no. how it could be done differently. Yeah, very, very good point. And, and while I know that, that some of the research was focused on audiologists, Nicole, um, I imagine that these same issues rise for other health professionals as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, drawing on what you've been saying, Trudy, about the, you know, that's, as Isabel said, there's space for reflective practice for individuals, you know, within the existing constraints. But I think one of the things that's really come out when we've been looking at the way lived experience accounts have filtered their way into lots of particularly health contexts is that, that those lived experience accounts can feed into lots of different spaces. So the clinic is one of those spaces, but um, professional education, you know, initial education and retraining in service education, service improvement is another space. Um, when um, myself and my colleague, Naomi Sunderland, were working on our book on digital storytelling in health a couple of years ago, we, we found out that uh, in the UK, uh, the, the kind of, in the Welsh NHS, there's a, a real focus on using lived experience accounts in the sort of governance processes. Um, so at that higher level where there's a little bit more, I guess, breathing space in a sense to think through the implications. Um, so whenever there's a, a board meeting in uh, the Welsh NHS, it starts off with a lived experience account. So it might be a service user. It might be a digital storyteller um, um, giving an account that's been recorded. And that sort of sets the tone and sets the agenda, maybe shifts focus or points towards the ways in which services do or don't mesh together well you know, the, dis, the, the disjunctions between them, those kinds of things kind of shifts attention in a really useful way. So I guess if part of what we found in talking to our, you know, super reflexive, super thoughtful um, and, you know, keen to learn um, uh, audiologists was that uh, there are these structural pro sort of barriers in some senses to, to enabling 
lived experience accounts to feed into those sort of clinical encounters, that part of the solution of that is to kind of identify some of these structures. And it, actually some of the people we talked to, I'd say were kind of professional activists in some senses who really did see that, you know, there were things that needed to be changed in the wider scene in order for them to do their job properly. So I think some of the ways in which lived experience accounts have kind of worked is at that political level or at the level of, of governance and education, which, you know, kind of feeds into all of, all of our work, but that's right across the board, I think. So it's not just in audiology. Um, I guess what's it's been a real privilege for me as a person who isn't an audiologist and you know hasn't had those professional trainings is just to see how much audiologists that we spoke to and you know, really cared about making sure they did a decent job and were really aware of the power they held themselves, you know, where they were positioned in terms of the kind of terrain of power. And I think that was really um, impressive. We also had a chat with quite a few people in the focus groups who had lived experience of being hard of hearing themselves, being hearing aid users. And, you know, so they were not just drawing on their professional experience, but also drawing on uh, their experience as service users. So I think I think that that reflexivity is kind of important, but I do think people in it were talking about the ways that identifying those, those kind of issues about um, the commercial pressures within audiology or um, shifts to a more, I guess, less less um, professionals in managerial positions, I guess, in audiology clinics. That was another theme that came out. Um, and the problems that might bring in terms of not having mentoring or opportunities to go, hang on, this came up. Like, what do I do? This person's disclosed domestic violence in, in the clinical context. What do I do about that? Um, so I guess this, the broader sort of context for lived experience accounts across health and in other areas as well is that if we're sort of identifying shared experiences through listening to clients then there's opportunities to to shift that not only in individual professional practice or individual encounters with clients but also at these broader structural levels and it does seem that audiologists in particular can do that to 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 act in those ways and to 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 try and push towards a more sort of socially just as well as efficient arrangements. Absolutely. And we, when we look at the, the power of the shutout report is what inspired the NDIS. And so I think there is real power in lived experience and valuing those stories, collecting those stories, looking for the patterns and then using that to leverage for change. And so I think the work that you're doing is incredibly powerful and we look forward to, to seeing more in this area. So thank you so much, ladies, for, for your work and for sharing it with us today and, and for Justine as well for her involvement in this. So we appreciate your, your time today making us aware of this. Thanks so much. 